0: listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Happy Mother's Day. Mother's Day officially started back in the early 1900s, um, and it became something that was the focal point of the church, and so I just want to take a minute before we look into the text of Scripture, and uh, just thank you, moms. But also, while we're in church, gathered as the people of God, I want to tell you that, that motherhood and family is a part of God's created order, and it's sacred, motherhood is sacred. Parenting is sacred. Children are sacred. Uh, It's a gift from God to have a mother, someone to take you and nurture you. There's not a single one of us here in this room this morning that would be alive were it not for a mother giving birth to us and a mother caring for us and nurturing us and feeding us and providing for us when we could do nothing for ourselves. And so let us take a minute and remember the sacredness of motherhood; that it is a part of God's created order, um, and let us worship Him this morning as we reflect on um, this great gift. But let us also be reminded as we think about what's going on in our world, and our world is unraveling. We look like uh, uh, Genesis six five, if you want to. You don't need to turn there. We're in Luke seventeen. But in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, the world was in a mess. Everybody was doing exactly what they wanted to do. It wasn't that far from Genesis 3 to Genesis 6, the fall of man to the complete upheaval and worldwide flood, not only mentioned in Scripture but proven archaeologically. Um, And and then we don't get far from there into the book of Judges chapter 2 where everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. And then we really uh, find ourselves in the New Testament era and we're like, what were they dealing with when all of these things were written in Scripture, when they wrote Scripture? What were they dealing with around them? And you can read Romans 1 and you can see some of what they were dealing with. These are real issues, the same issues that we're facing today. Um, uh, There is no society that can exist apart from maintaining the sacred order that God has provided for us. Our society will crumble. Our world will go away. Our nation will go away. And when you begin to see the crumbling of the family, which we're well into that, uh, decades into that, when you begin to see this lack of respect for uh, the sacredness of what God has given us, human life, motherhood, parenting, children, um, we know that our world is in trouble. And the, the, the great thing about that is, um, you say, well, why don't, why don't you just uh, address all of those issues? You already know about all those issues. I hope you land on the same side of those issues as the Creator lands on, on those issues. If you don't, I would compel you to come to Christ. I would compel you to believe in Him. I would compel you to come and be a part of the family of God. Um, I would compel you to order your life around the instructions that the Creator has given us and find a love relationship with Him and a love relationship with each other in the body of Christ. But while all of this is going on in our world, when the Bible was written, all these things were going on in their world. So what did they talk about when they gathered, right? Right? What we have in the same kind of world that that we live in, the scripture was written with all of these cultural upheavals going on. What did they do? What did they focus on? And we've got the gospels that focus on the life of Christ, and we've got... The book of Acts that focuses on the history of the church. And then we've got these books that are written to maybe congregations or to churches in cities. So we have the geographical name on a lot of the books, like to the Thessalonians or to the Philippians or to the Corinthians. And then we have these personal letters, like to Philemon, or Peter is writing to these dispersed people, or uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John is writing prophetic words through the book of Revelation. What do we need to be studying? because there there would be those that would call on us to address every social issue and ill that's going on, and they weren't doing that. They were addressing the church, right? I mean, we can can talk about everything that's going on out there, and I hope your heart's on the right side of it. I hope your mind's on the right side of it, the biblical side of it. But the, the, the problem that we face is not all that's going on in the world. The problem that we face is that Many times the church is just not being the church. And so scripture is addressing that, calling the church back to be the church, calling believers back to reflecting and representing Jesus Christ. So as we come to the gospel of Luke and Jesus has been dealing with the religious establishment, he's been dealing with the Pharisees. He's been dealing with structures that are in place that the people are used to. And he essentially is trying to say, this is what goes on in these structures. This is what goes on according to their rules. This is how they're interpreting scripture. But here is how I want you to live. And these are some of the most beautiful words that you could ever read. The word of God and how Jesus approaches life and relationships. And so when we come uh, to Luke 17, and I want to begin reading in verse number 1, Jesus is going to be dealing with some issues that we still today need to be dealing with. And if we deal with them effectively, we are going to find ourselves in a place where we can go into this world that has nothing but anger and rage and rebellion, and we can offer peace and we can offer hope and we can offer love and we can let that love be put on display when they see believers meeting and gathering together and loving one another. So Luke 17, beginning in verse 1. We've been going through the scriptures systematically. That's what we always do. Our desire is not to land on some hot-button topic issue and deal with that on a Sunday. Um, Our desire is to let what is in God's Word unfold systematically week after week. And so we've already gone through 16 chapters of the Gospel of Luke, and I've just fallen in love with the Gospel of Luke as I've gone through it. Um, It's just so fresh and so real and so powerful when you just take the microscope and you drop it down on a passage like we've done today. And so I want to begin reading in verse number 1. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, then he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles heard that, and they respond. They're like, whoa, who does that? How do you do that? My nature doesn't do that. The way I relate doesn't doesn't flesh itself out like that. And the apostles said to him, Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed you could say to this mulberry tree and a mulberry tree has this uh, this elaborate root system you could say to this mulberry tree be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you so jesus is dealing with their faith and they want more faith and he's saying take the grain of a mustard seed of faith and put that in the object of your faith jesus christ He moves on though and he begins to talk to them about serving you see the pharisees wanted to be honored they wanted to serve and to be recognized they wanted they wanted to be applauded so jesus addresses that issue well any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field come at once and recline at table Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you, have, you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And so we see the humility of servanthood. And then finally, Jesus deals with these ten lepers who received mercy, and only one of them returned to worship. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices. They couldn't get close to people. The law wouldn't allow it. But they're crying from afar, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. So they obeyed what Jesus said. And when they got to the temple to see the priest, they found themselves cleansed of leprosy and they were declared free verse 15 then one of them when he saw that he was healed turned back praising God with a loud voice and he fell on his face at Jesus feet giving him thanks now he was a samaritan then Jesus answered were not 10 cleansed where are the nine was not was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner and he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. What do we see in the, in the text here this morning? First of all, we, we see true faith will deal with sin fearfully and redemptively. And this is what Jesus is dealing with. He's dealing with true faith. We, get to the, we look at the beginning and we get to the end and, and we see the teaching on faith in the middle when the apostles say, increase our faith. And Jesus is dealing with the issue of true faith. And there are four things that true faith will manifest. Number one, true faith will deal with sin fearfully and redemptively. True faith will deal with sin fearfully and redemptively. Let me deal with the fearfully part first. We see that in verse one. True faith uh, will deal with sin fearfully. The text tells us this, that temptation to sin is inevitable. Temptation to sin is universal. Temptation to sin is going to come to every single one of us. And not only is it going to come to every single one of us, it is going to come to the closest followers of Jesus Christ. You say, I'm so close to Jesus, I'm not even tempted. I I don't think that that's true. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to those who are with him. Many times when we're tempted, we beat ourselves up. Evil is always hunting. Satan never takes a day off. He is always working, presenting opportunities for us to enter into sin that will control and destroy us. So temptation is inevitable. We see that over and over in Scripture. In Luke chapter 22, just a few pages over in verse number 40. Jesus deals with this issue or mentions it when he says, and when he came to, this, to the place and uh, praying before he goes to the cross, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. So uh, temptation is inevitable. It's coming to us. It's, it's, Paul told Timothy, flee fornication. Flee youthful lust. It's going to be pursuing you. You need to run from it. Temptation is inevitable. All of us will face Temptation. He tells us later on in the text this morning, pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention when temptation is coming. Don't take temptation lightly. Fear temptation. Don't yield to temptation. Don't give in to temptation and expect temptation to come and be ready for it when it does. I don't know how you handle temptation. But I've given into it enough to know that I don't want to do it again. But I also know how weak I am and how strong Satan is. And at some point, he's going to hit me in a weak spot, and I'm probably going to fail again. But I'm thankful for his mercy. I'm thankful for his grace. And I'm thankful for this scriptural admonition. Temptation is inevitable. But he goes on further in the text, and he develops a, a little finer point to the issue of temptation. He's dealing with it generally. Everybody's going to face temptation, but then he gives this this woe. He gives this warning, woe to the one through whom they come. In, In other words, it's one thing for temptation to come to you. It's a whole different thing for temptation to come through you. You see that? It's one thing to experience temptation, It's a whole different thing to be a source of temptation, to be used by the tempter to entice someone else to walk away from Christ, to disobey Christ, and to give in to sin. That is a serious issue. He's talking about either being the the victim of temptation or the source of temptation. The context here is that the Pharisees were leading their followers away from Jesus. They were leading their followers away from the identity of Jesus Christ and his spiritual leaders and scripture experts. They misrepresented God and led their followers to reject Jesus Christ and everything that scripture said about Jesus. That's a grievous thing here's what they were doing. They were using their influence among God's children to lead people away from the gospel, away from the mission of God, away from sanctification, away from worship, away from unity, away from love, away from the Holy Spirit and his vital work among the people of God do not let your influence in the lives of others be used to tempt them to move away from God and into sin. The text tells us that they were little ones. They were believers. They were Christians. But they were vulnerable Christians. They were immature Christians. There were these Spiritual leaders, the Pharisees, who were using their time to lead followers of Christ or those who were experiencing the presence of Christ away from him, using their influence to do that. Jesus said, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. He said it would be better if they took this huge millstone, and it's probably hyperbole that paints a a very graphic picture, you see, for a Jewish person, the worst form of death then would have been drowning. They couldn't think of any more torturous form of death than drowning. So you take this huge millstone and you put it around somebody's neck, and then you toss them in the sea, and they immediately are going to sink to the bottom of the sea. That's, that's terrible. That's that's f- fearful. He said, It would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be cast into the depths of the sea than to use your influence as a source of temptation in the life of another human being. Which means that we are very powerful. And unfortunately, most of us use our power negatively, we use our influence negatively. Our influence damages other people. Maybe it's our attitude. Maybe it's our negativity. Maybe it's our complaining spirit. Maybe it's our gossip. We just find ourselves stirred up and upset and distraught and complaining. Maybe somebody's excited about the mission of God. Maybe somebody's a new Christian and they're excited about their salvation, but you just, you, just, you just got the dirt, and you just need to tell them. They thought they got saved into this group of people that loved each other and loved God's word and loved the mission of God, and they were excited to be a part of that. But you just can't resist it. You just can't resist it. Don't use your influence to bring damage through temptation to the hearts particularly of new believers or anybody. Secondly, though, Jesus says not only must we deal with sin fearfully, we must deal with sin redemptively. And that's where he comes to verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times a day and just says, I repent. Doesn't look like repentance to me. I repent. You must forgive him. He says, pay attention, be on guard. Again, evil is always hunting. We can never take a break as long as evil is hunting. I'm just reminded often of Galatians chapter 6 and verse number 1. When we begin to deal with people who are in sin, don't forget Galatians 6.1. Please don't forget Galatians 6.1. Don't, don't be that person who approaches people in sin as though you never have. That's, that's a problem, right? Don't be that person who approaches somebody in sin to rebuke somebody in sin as though you have never sinned or as though you are as holy as God is. Because the one who is ultimately offended in our sin is God. And our objective in rebuking someone in their sin is to get them out of their sin because sin is going to destroy them, but sin also mars their relationship with other people and their relationship with God. And those are our deep concerns for them. Galatians chapter 6 says, Brothers... If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. He didn't say, You who are angry, you who are bitter, you who want to wrinkle up and crinkle up your face because you think something stinks and there's never been any stink of sin on you, but you can't, you're repulsed by the stink of sin on this brother. He didn't say that. You should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And by the way, while you're restoring somebody, keep watch on yourself, lest you to be tempted. It's waiting for you. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So pay attention pay attention, right? That's what the text says. Secondly, he says rebuke. Rebuke. The word word rebuke means to confront. How do we rebuke? Rudely or condescendingly or angrily or haughtily? One writer said, and we could take this from a conglomeration of various texts in the scripture, we we should rebuke courageously. If you genuinely love somebody and you are going to go to them when they are in sin to call them out of that sin and you are going to do it the right way so that you can hopefully maintain a relationship with them after you have called them out of their sin, it takes great courage to do that. It is much easier just to ignore it. It's much easier just to hope that it goes away. It takes great courage to go to somebody and say, Hey, brother. I need to talk with you about something and my heart is breaking and I am grieving and I'm coming in humility knowing that in mid-sentence, temptation may jump on me. And I just want to courageously come to you. It takes courage to rebuke people. But that rebuke should be in gentleness. Coming from someone who knows what it's like, to have the snot beat out of them by sin. Not coming from someone who's never sinned, but someone who struggled with sin. Courageously, gently, in humility, lovingly. Speak the truth in love. Right? What does that mean? It doesn't mean put the prefix on to every truth statement that you make, particularly in a rebuking way, it doesn't mean the prefix to that is brother, I love you. Saying I love you does not give you the right to then say anything you want to say. What gives you the right to come to me and rebuke me would be that I know before you get to me and open your mouth that you love me. Y'all with me? So speaking the truth in love is not about saying, oh, I love you, kaboom. Speaking the truth in love is I'm fixing to speak to you and I'm going to speak truthfully and perhaps rebukingly, but I'm doing it because we have a relationship and you know that I love you deeply and I want what's best for you. I've said often, do do I need to say it or do they need to hear it? And if they need to hear it, you need to say it in such a way that they can. So we rebuke, listen to this, our mission is the transformation of ourselves and others. We are pursuing holiness, we are pursuing unity, we are pursuing love, we are pursuing relational beauty in community that is the basis of our going to others and rebuking them. The thought of being repulsed by another sin as though we are righteous is self-righteousness, and that is not the idea behind the command to rebuke. The second thing we see in the text is not only pay attention, not only rebuke, the third thing is actually that we need to forgive. We need to forgive. Now, I know someone's already caught the word if. Do not build your theology on the word if. In fact, the weight of the text is not placed on the word if, right? Because somebody's already thinking, yeah, I know, I will forgive them if they repent, right? And so we build this entire theological system and we've got these people imprisoned in our mind who have offended us and we will not release them. We will keep our contempt. We will keep our bitterness. We will keep our anger. We will keep our judgment. We will continue to avoid them until they repent in a manner that is satisfactory to our definition and liking. Right? That's what we do. And so we're going to say, I'll tell you what, man, that passage right there said if. That passage says a whole lot more than if. An if is there, and I will not deny the if, but I'm not going to take the weight of the passage and put it on the if, right? I'm just not going to do that because the passage doesn't put the weight of the passage on the if. The passage puts the weight on the passage where someone is sinning over and over and over and over again, and they're being gone to in love over and over again, and they are being forgiven over and over and over again. And the weight of Scripture would bear that out. So let us be careful when it comes to forgiving. The word forgive means to let go of your right to judge, to let go of your right to be angry, to let go of your right to get even, to let go of your right to get revenge. Forgive means to let go of your right to get justice. You can release their sin to God. You can trust the Spirit to do a work in their heart. And this text, by the way, if you want a little more clarification on it, mirrors Matthew chapter 18 in the Synoptic Gospels. So you say, Luke has given us just a skeleton of it. Matthew 18, beginning in verse number 15, gives us the, the, the full manuscript of what was, I don't want to say intended because what we have in Luke was intended, but a fuller understanding of what Jesus is talking about in this context that helps, helps us understand what's going on here in this text. The weight of the text is, is given to forgiveness. Forgiveness. The weight of the text is not found in the if. The weight of the text is not found as some justification for us not forgiving. The text is not justifying continuing to hold someone's offenses against them and not releasing them until they have met your form of demands for repentance. If you hang all of your forgiveness theology on the if, you might be theologically wobbly and not have an understanding of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Our forgiveness of others is not based on their penance. And our forgiveness of others is not based on us determining if they have truly repented He's saying if they say that they repent, our forgiveness of others is based on the atoning work of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you go to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said some pretty amazing things that, by the way, um, are really difficult if I don't have the power of the Holy Spirit working in me. In Matthew chapter 5, it's not there because I'm in Mark chapter 5, always helps to be in the right book. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Sounds good to me, right? By the way, that's a gracious admonition. In the Middle East, if you ran over somebody's petunia in the front yard, they would say, you have angered me, and they would come back and kill all of your family. You know, that's even. That's what they. So he's like, no, hold, hold on, wait a minute, wait a minute. Somebody knocks out your tooth, you don't get to decapitate them you get to knock out their tooth. That's grace. That's grace in an out-of-balance Middle Eastern society. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him 2 miles go to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you you have heard it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy but i say to you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he makes his son to rise on evil and on good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more do you what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, are, you must therefore be perfect as your Father in heaven. Is perfect. Jesus is telling us that we should even love our enemies. And Jesus is telling us that here's God's love, but God demonstrated his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then we see in Ephesians chapter four and verse 32, that we're to be tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Our forgiveness of others should already be set in place even before an offense occurs. Because our forgiveness occurred before the foundation of the world. John First John chapter four. Just listen on forgiveness. We see it throughout scripture. We should be a forgiving people. We should be a gracious people. We should be a merciful people. Listen to 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, here's the relationship of love to forgiveness. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God the Father punished His Son for my sin. God's son paid my sin debt so that I could have a restored relationship with the father. That should be our focus when there is offense. How can we go to the father and accept his forgiveness for, for our sin against him on the basis of the payment of his son when we would then look at someone who offended us or sinned against us and not accept the payment of the son for their sin as well? right? He's already gotten even on the cross. He goes on to say, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. I'm turning back to Luke 17 now so that we can continue walking through the text. Let me just make this statement. The person sinning against you is not your biggest problem and should not be your weightiest issue. The person sinning against you is not your biggest problem. And let me just, let me just stop and ask you to think about something for a minute. I know how my mind works, <laughs> and I hope your mind doesn't work like mine does. That would be really bad. But I think that I have probably offended more people than have offended me. I think that I have probably sinned against more people than have offended me. And it is a sickening feeling. It makes me physically sick. It consumes all of my energy when I take the time to let myself dwell on the people that I think, that I think have offended me. By the way, let me back it up and give us another perspective. There are those who think somebody offended them when they didn't really offend them, but many of us are just so quick. To jump to, what are you doing offending me? Right? We're just so quick. We're so quick when there may not have been any offense there to start with. So we got to be careful. But when there is offense, what floods your mind? Those that offended you? You got a list? Or those that you have offended? Is there anybody here? that has been offended, that has never offended anyone? Is there anybody here that has been sinned against, that has, never, that has never sinned against anyone? So our biggest problem is not those who have offended us or those who have sinned against us. Our biggest problem, please hear me, is our failure to love those who have sinned against us. Perfect example. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Well, Jesus had to die for the church so that he could have a relationship with us. There is love put on display and commanded to husbands. So he's basically saying when your wife offends you, you die for that offense. That's what Jesus did. When your wife offends you, you bear that offense. That's what Jesus did. You're not sitting around saying, i got a whole list of things my wife did to me. Now, maybe you do. Maybe I do. But Scripture tells us different. There's a different way. There's a better way. Therefore, the problem that we have is not the list of people that we have offended us that need to come to us and tell us that they're sorry or tell us that they repent. The biggest problem that we have is not loving the people that have sinned against us. That's the greater sin. This is undeniable from this text. The hope or goal of this text and similar text, listen, is repentance and is restoration and is the removal of offense. The purpose of this text is not the justification of unforgiveness. I'm not denying anything that the text says, but I'm telling you that the force of the text is not the justification of unforgiveness. And if you're taking that away from this text, then you are not getting what the text means. The force of this text is repentance and restoration and removal of sin so that the people of God can continue on mission and be one and love one another and put the power of God on display in the world because we are dealing with sin fearfully and redemptively. Our Lord, as he hung on the cross, or as he was being beaten, he said, Father, what? Forgive them. Were they repenting? No. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. The second thing we see in the text is this true faith will trust Christ and his power completely. Verses 5 and 6. True faith will trust Christ and his power completely. Here's what the disciples recognized as they heard this. We cannot defeat sin. So we must trust someone who can. We cannot defeat sin. Increase our faith. We cannot defeat sin. We need to trust you, Jesus, more if we're going to deal with sin. It's not about trying harder. It's not about being better. It's not about being more disciplined. It's not about putting more pressure on yourself. It's not about saying mantras over and over again. I'm not going to look. I'm not going to look. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. No, I'm, I know I can't deal with it, so I need someone who can deal with it, and his name is Jesus. He did deal with it. So don't hear a saying today that you've got to be better and you've got to try harder. And if if you feel really bad and you've sinned really bad, we're going to say stuff to make you feel really ashamed because shame is one of the primary motivators in our culture. But the greatest motivation is love and Christ's love for us and his death for us and his laying down his life for us. And we can't deal with sin, but he can. So help us trust you more, Lord. Help us rest in you and what you have done. Our ability to deal with sin is not humanly possible. We need supernatural help. This kind of victory over temptation, not using your influence to damage others, lovingly rebuking and forgiving are all supernatural characteristics that require supernatural strength. So they say increase our faith in your in, in your ability to enable me I will be able then to deal with sin effectively. But without you I can't. I hope you don't hear me soft selling sin I'm not because dealing with sin is essential to the mission of God. Sinning against each other in biblical community is going to happen. We in this church are going to sin against one another. Do you hear me? We are. It is inevitable. The challenge is this. How do we exist with people, live on mission with people who we sin against and who sin against us? We need supernatural power. We need a power that is not our own. The knee-jerk temptation is to leave people on the island of their sinfulness, particularly if their sin is against us. And when we do, when we quit, we have placed a personal offense above the mission of God. I got sinned against. I got hurt so bad. I quit. What did you just do? You placed a personal offense above the mission of God. God. We need supernatural faith in the power of God and the finished work of His Son in order to deal with sin and stay on course for the kingdom and for His glory. Let's go ahead right now, sign your name to the bottom of what I'm fixing to say. We are all broken. We are all fallen. We are all sinful. We are all dysfunctional people. The weight of this text is not on being the sin detective or sniffing out sin in others. The weight of this text is on the inevitability of sin's power and presence among us. And out of our love for each other and almighty God, we rely on him to enable us to resolve sin so that the work of the kingdom can be accomplished. That's what Luke is getting at. You hear this all the time. What happened to that church? Oh, I remember back in 1996, Wednesday night, there were more cars here than you could count. They had a business meeting a knockdown, down, drag out. And now nobody goes there anymore. Why? Because believers refused to resolve the issues of sin between them. They said, who cares about the church? You hurt me. We hear it all the time. Why did that church close? Why did those people leave the church? Why did that pastor leave the church? Why did that missionary or mission agency cease to exist? They could not, they would not, by God's grace and power, resolve sin for the sake of mission and glory through the people of God. They just wouldn't do it. They had interpersonal issues that they refused to resolve, and they said, who cares about the mission of God? I got my feelings hurt. We need supernatural power. Keith, who did our uh, Spiritual Conversations workshop, we had a a great crowd of people there. I hope everybody that was there was blessed. The reports that I've heard were extremely good. Getting on a plane today, going to Scotland. Keith has been going to South Africa. He's been to Scotland. He's been to other places that we can't mention. And he's going into those places And he's basically helping missionaries learn how to relate to each other because a lot of times people come from all over the world, get together in a mission unit on a mission station, and they find out that they really want to reach the people around them, but they can't get along with each other. And they need help. They need to know how to relate. This is what this text is dealing with. It takes supernatural power. It takes heart transformation if we're going to relate the way christ wants us to relate to accomplish his mission we need the supernatural power of god the third thing from the text is this true faith will serve christ in humility and i've already mentioned the context where the scribes and pharisees wanted to be honored let me just make a couple of application points nothing that we do for god should cause us to presume that he is indebted to us Nothing that we do for God should cause us to presume that he is indebted to us. You know, I did this. I served here. I've engaged in this. Why Why isn't God doing this for me? We think that all the time because we have a propensity for the prosperity gospel. We really do. Nothing that we do for God should cause us to presume that he is indebted to us. If we serve God transactionally, we will never know him relationally and never worship him supremely. What do you mean serving God transactionally? I mean, I'm going to do this for God and God's going to do this for me. No, if we serve God transactionally, we will never know him relationally. And the only thing that's going to get you through life is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Second point of application, never fear living a life of costly sacrificial service never fear living this is what the text is bearing out you've got this guy he's like i've been working in the field all day i get home the guy's like yeah go ahead and you serve me right now that's not i'm not saying that's how you should treat people this is the point that jesus is trying to make that you just keep on serving and you serve sacrificially and no you're not going to get a chance to go sit and recline your feet while you're here but that's what servants do that's what servants do Never fear living a life of costly sacrificial service and never think that God owes you something or that you deserve something if you do. Not even recognition and honor. And then the final and the fourth point is this. True faith will respond to great mercy with life-consuming worship. We see that in verses 11 and 19. We also see it in Romans 12, 1 and 2. These, these, these lepers... they were messed up. They couldn't even get close to people. In fact, the only people they could hang out with were other people that had leprosy like them. And the lepers had formed such a community that they were even willing to let this Samaritan in. So the the greater thing about their identity was not their nationality, but their disease. And so this leper is sort of the outsider who acts in a way that's shocking because he is the only one that comes back to Jesus and expresses gratitude. But here are these lepers. Folks, listen to me. You'll never understand the grace and mercy of God until you see yourself as a leper in your sin. Sin destroys Sin will eat away your soul. Sin will mess up your mind. Sin will destroy your relationships. Don't play with sin. Don't mess with sin. It's worse than leprosy. Does anybody want leprosy? I don't want leprosy. When I was growing up, they used to have movies about people with leprosy. You're like, I don't want leprosy. Does anybody want leprosy? How many of us are dabbling in sin? How many of us are playing with sin? Until we see ourselves as leprosy, until we see sin like leprosy, until we see ourselves infected with that sin to the core of our being, we will never cry out to God for mercy. The cry to mercy, the cry to God for mercy is this, punish someone else for my sin. Have mercy on me. Find somebody else to punish for what I've done wrong. And that other person that was punished was Jesus Christ. Anytime you cry for mercy, you're saying, find a substitute To be punished for my sin in my place. Jesus was the substitute punished for your sin and my sin in our place. We cry out for mercy when we recognize how sinful and hopeless we are. These lepers were crying out for mercy because they were eaten up with leprosy. Jesus saw them, Jesus healed them, Jesus restored them. Nine of them went their way. I don't know if the nine that went their way were, were Jewish and this one Samaritan came back. They, uh, the point was made that this is this one Samaritan that understood. So I'm not going to try to make a distinction that's not made in the text. But th- That distinction is there for a reason. And here this man that cried out for mercy because he knew what a mess he was in comes back to Jesus and he worships him. In, until we understand how messed up we are, and how desperately we need mercy we will not live a life of life consuming worship because that's what he did he comes back to Jesus he falls at his feet and he's so filled with gratitude the subject of gratitude is a whole different matter we live in a world that that's a lost art nowadays being thankful being thankful I love Romans 12. It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the, what's the next word? Mercies of God. Right. You've expe- I've, spent, I've spent 11 chapters talking to you about salvation. I've spent 11 chapters talking to you about the mercies of God. Now, here's what I'm going to ask you to do because in 11 chapters you understand the mercies of God. I'm going to ask you to lay down your life as a living sacrifice, which is a reasonable act of worship. Worship. So, true faith will respond to great mercy with life-consuming worship. Let me just ask you a a few questions this morning. Number one, how are you responding to temptation? Number two, how are you using your relational influence in the kingdom of God? Is there a possibility that you're using your influence to, to, to tempt others to sin? And my dear friends, if you are using your influence to tempt others to sin... It would be better for a millstone to be hung around your neck and for you to be cast into the depths of the sea and you drown. That's what Jesus is saying. Thirdly, are you taking sin seriously and responding redemptively? Are you going to brothers and sisters in Christ and lovingly rebuking them? Are you, when you are rebuked, repenting of your sin and turning from it? And when a brother or sister repents, are you receiving them or are you still treating them like there's some sin stink on them? What are you doing that takes God's power to make it possible? What are you facing and you are crying out to God saying, this is so difficult, this is so challenging, this is so far outside of my zip code from where I live, I can't do this. Increase my faith. I need you, Jesus, desperately. I can't do it. I can't do it. Do you see yourself in your sin as an unhealable leper? Do you see your hopelessness and your depravity? Do you see Jesus? Do you see Jesus? Who says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. Come unto me, you that are eaten up with leprosy. Come unto me, you that are beaten down by sin. Come unto me, you that have just been worn out and and you're you're limping and your sin sores are just oozing with pus. The world has just just beaten you to smithereens and Jesus says, come to me. Because he died for our sin in our place. And he can immediately say, you are clean, you are healed, you are holy, you are righteous, you are mine. Come into fellowship, come into the family, come into community. That is the gospel. Would you come to him today? Would you believe in him today? Would you receive his mercy today? And if you say, man, I, I received his mercy a long time ago. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. The only appropriate response to the mercies of God is to lay our lives on the altar. That's it. Living sacrifices as an act of worship.